This morning, uh, if you would, uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to James and uh, the book of James. We are going to be taking a break from our Luke series. Uh, next week, Creation Ministries will be here, and then we'll be doing a series this summer. Uh, as we do, we stop off and do a summer series. We'll be doing a summer series out of the Psalms, looking at the creative power of God through the Psalms over the next following weeks, and then we'll pick Luke back up uh, midway through August. Um, as the summer kind of comes to a conclusion. But this morning, as we are looking at the text, my hope is that as you consider next week and as you consider today, that you be looking for opportunities to, uh, to bridge people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our desire as followers of Christ is to invite people into relationship with Jesus. And so with that, that means that part of our call as believers is not to look to win the argument. We are looking to bring people and allow Christ to do the winning of the argument in people's lives as we share the truth. Too often in our own culture, it becomes about winning. And I remember years ago working with a man, and this man was... Uh, had come out of a very complicated background, uh, a background which was out of a false religion, and then 20 years living in a, in a, a same-sex attracted community, and then ending that and pursuing political ideologies, in essence, to to then pursue. There was always something he was chasing, always something that he was investing in. And I remember after having prayed for him for a year and a half, the time that he showed up at church on a given Sunday, and he'd owned a local business, and we, I didn't even know the man. I knew his partner. That's who I knew. And we had been praying for his partner and this man showed up at church, and he said, hey, I'd uh, like to talk to you. And so we began speaking. And he said, my partner and I have gone separate ways, um, but I'd like to just talk to you about the Lord. And for the next six months, we met every week to go over the Word of God together. And I remember an individual coming up to me later, and he says, hey, Tim, when are you going to close the deal? When are you going to do it? And I remember being so bothered by it that this time of walking with this person in the Scripture, walking in the Word, going through it, letting the Lord work on his heart, yes, providing the invitation. What do you think? What do you think about the gospel? But coming to that place that in some way we could manufacture somebody else's experience of repentance and confession for them. We are not a salvation processing house. And we are not salvation makers. Jesus is. And it is the gospel that saves, and it is the gospel that transforms. And we are the truth bearers. We are the ones that bring the invitation and proclaim the truth in love. We're not here to win arguments. We're here to present the truth of Jesus Christ 
and let God wrestle with a person's heart. And for many of us, we can step back and see that. But so often, we argue with God. We think that we bring more to the table than what the Lord does. And this morning, we're going to be looking at this text in James, and we're going to be dealing with that text. And in light of this week being kind of the the beginning of celebrations for 4th of July, this day that we celebrate our independence from England as an independent, self-sustaining nation, at the heart of our own national DNA is this idea of independence and self-sufficiency and the ability to make ourselves whoever we would desire. That's the essence of the American dream, isn't it? But if we're not careful, it bleeds into our own spiritual life. It bleeds into who we believe we are. There's that old saying, with hard work and perseverance, all things are possible to accomplish. That's not true. It's not. As hard as I want to be, seven foot one, it will never, ever happen. With all the hard work and perseverance, unless God does some miraculous miracle, I will never be seven foot one. And no matter how much hard work, and maybe this is the better comparable, that I could put into baseball, my life bled it and sweat it. And it looked like, oh, compared to other guys, you had more talent. And as hard as I could throw as a 12-year-old and as a 15-year-old and as 18-year-old, I could never throw 95 miles an hour. I could never throw 100 miles an hour like guys do today. All of what we've been given, as Scripture says, is from the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that we get to stand by and be lazy, and it doesn't mean that we stand by and are passive. But we need to recognize that all that we are and all that we are to be is in Jesus and comes from Jesus. And see, while there's truth and and even a call to hard work and perseverance, our faith demands something more. It recognizes that apart from God, we are nothing. We are completely and utterly dependent upon him. In fact, when we trust in our own wisdom rather than his word and continually seek pleasure apart from Christ, James 4, 5 tells us that we've made ourselves an enemy of God. Isn't that interesting? That when we've pursued worldliness, when we find pleasure apart from Jesus, when we seek wisdom apart from God, we are actually an enemy of God. We put ourselves there. But the amazing part is God is still gracious. And the very next verse, he begins in verse 6, but he gives more grace. You see, God desires us to walk as victors in his kingdom, not as enemies. And that's what we're talking about this morning, is victory that is found in Christ as victors of his kingdom, not enemies to his kingdom. So if you have your Bibles, let's stand together. We're going to be reading from James chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 10. Some of you may be very familiar with this passage. For others, it may be a brand new passage for you. But this is what it says. But he gives more grace. 
Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Draw near to God, or excuse me, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Father, may we be a people who are exalted through our humility in you. May we be a people, Father, who find our strength and our sufficiency in you. And may we live a victorious life as victors in your kingdom, not as enemies awaiting defeat. May we live with the power of victory, not with the hopelessness of loss. Encourage our hearts this morning. Draw us to yourself. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. If you bear with me just a few minutes, I may cough throughout this. I've been battling a bit of a head cold and allergies. Um, you can be praying for me that <coughs> it's a bit of a dance because you guys know my chest has been repaired and coughing all week has not done well for that. And so trying to get small while I cough is, uh, is quite a bit of a challenge. So if I look kind of funny when I cough, You'll know why. Um, and uh, you guys can be praying because if this continues, it will prevent me from having surgery on Thursday. So um, we're just asking for the Lord's will and that peace. And so, um, yeah, we're just asking that God would bring that to fruition in, in his will, his way, and his time. So um, at the heart of this passage this morning is the idea that seeking Christ in humility is essential to experiencing the victory and blessing of his grace. Seeking Christ in humility is essential to experiencing the victory and blessing of His grace. Humility, victory, and grace. Those are the three things that go together. Now, when you think about worldly victory, very seldom do we think about grace. <clears throat> Quite the contrary. We think about power, we think about overwhelming, we think about Get them and give them what is due. Victory is not often marked by humility. It's shown by, in a worldly sense, it's by a show of force. It's to show how strong you are, how physical you are, how good you are, and how powerful you are. Victory is seldom shown through humility in our life, and it's seldom shown in grace in our life, in the life of culture, right? It's a show of power. Watch an athletic team, right? One of the things we talk about. I remember uh, uh, questioning a doctor one time, and actually it was not me, it was Lisa, and she said, are you the best person to do this? And his response was, yes. And she said, is there anybody else in this area in all of California that can do this surgery better than you? And he said, no. And I laughed out loud and Elisa laughed out loud, and I loved his response. He looked us right in the eye, and he said, listen, I'm confident, but I'm not grandiose. And I thought, wow, well, he knows the difference, right? There's a difference between pride, right, and confidence. In Christ, our confidence is in him. 
That's where our strength comes from. That's where our hope comes from. Not in our own abilities. And James immediately reveals to us how God gives us more grace in this passage. Verse 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So often we simply view God's grace in terms of salvation. However, it's only through God's grace that we are constantly being transformed. What do we talk about? What do we mean when we talk about being Christ-centered or gospel-centered? What we mean is that the gospel is not simply needed for salvation, but it is needed every single day that we live our lives. That God is still calling us to be a people who repent and confess sin, that turn away from sin, that pull on Christ's power, that see our need for Jesus every single day in our life. The gospel and receiving the gospel through faith and repentance is not an event in your life. I mean, salvation in essence may mark a specific time in which you are redeemed, but your redemption is taking place not no longer positionally, but practically every single day. God is working in you, transforming you, renewing you. And what he's saying here is that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Now, know that James is actually writing this to believers. This is not a passage that he's writing to the lost. Now, this is the true. If if you don't know Jesus, Jesus is making the same call to you. He's saying that he's opposing the proud and gives grace to the humble. But as a believer in Christ, He's saying the tendency to look to your own strength and put your own strength and your own hope in your own devices is common. And it's tricky. And it's destructive. See, unfortunately, many people within Christ's church claim to have faith in Christ, but live, as verse 4 says, wishing to be a friend of the world, making themselves at enmity or hostile with God. When we live with one foot in the world meaning we desire the things of the world, and then we over here desire the things of God, what he's saying is, it's kind of worthless. You're actually making yourself an enemy or at enmity with God. He's saying what I want is all of you, not part of you. And I think we kind of evaluate ourselves on degrees, don't we? Well, I've given you this part of my life, Lord, but I don't want to give you this part. This is the part that I like a lot about my life, Lord, that I kind of want to hang on to. And I've given you everything else. You know where I'm really at. But what the Lord is saying is, I want all of you. And I want all of you now, not later. The call is to a a holistic, meaning a total faith in Jesus not a partial faith in Christ. You see, when we choose to worship the things of the world, to to seek friendship with the world, that's the essence of pride. It's trusting in our own strength and attempting to find our joy or security in the things of the world rather than Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't enjoy the things that are given to us, the blessings that are provided to us in this life. But it means that those are not the things that we pursue with priority. The call that the Lord has given us is to pursue Him with priority. 
You see, Warren Wiersbe puts it this way. God wants us to, depend, to us to depend on His grace, while the devil wants us to depend on ourselves. Our satisfaction will never be found in the things of this world. I had a neighbor who used to move from hobby to hobby to hobby. And we lived with them, near them, we lived next to them for almost 20 years. And every two to three years, you'd see a new hobby with new investment. And it was all abandoned to that hobby. He talked about just getting bored easily, never being content, never being satisfied, never being fulfilled, but trying to find it in the world, not in Christ. See, ultimately, this is the very thing that prevents us from experiencing the eternal peace and blessing that brings lasting fulfillment. Our pride actually is the thing that robs us of fulfillment. We're seeking to find pleasure in our means, not in the Lord. We're seeking to do things in our way, not in the Lord's. So God's grace is not given then so that we can continue in sin. Rather, His grace is to free us from sin and enable us to walk in victory over sin. So what is grace? It's the undeserved favor of God. That's what grace is. The undeserved favor of God. So God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That word oppose is actually a, a warrior language. It means that God is set against you. Do you ever think about that? That when you choose to trust in your own strength and sufficiency, you are actually setting God against you. You think that you're actually trying to help God along, right? God helps those who help themselves. We've heard that phrase. It's nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere. I think it's Zig Ziglar, actually. The truth is that we walk in submission with the Lord, and the Lord is the one who does the work. We don't bring anything to the table except ourselves and our willingness to come under him as Lord. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So grace God's grace upon us is a work of the Lord offered to us. Maybe an example of that is this. Here's a difference. There used to be a lot of saying around people, I brought that person to salvation. I led that person to salvation. Have you ever thought about that sentence for a minute? I'm the one that engaged their salvation. Rather than wanting the glory for ourselves, 
what if we actually saw the glory of God at work within it, which God gave me the opportunity to walk with that person in salvation, to lead them toward Jesus. God used me. What a different posture, isn't it? What a different way of standing back and looking at what has just happened. God, you used me. Me. You know that I didn't even know how to answer their question in that moment, and you gave me some rickety-dickety answer that I don't even know made sense, and they're like, got it, right? That's the gospel. That's Jesus at work within you when you have no idea what's happening. The things that we find so important are often the things that are sought not so important. So we need to walk in humility with Jesus. You see, when we walk in our own strength and pursue the ways of the world, God's in opposition to us. In fact, the language is so strong here that it implies that a person should not be secure in their faith if they continue to trust in their own strength. It's only through God's grace that we are able to experience genuine fulfillment in Him and to live as victors. So how do we walk in humility to experience the victory of God's grace? Or maybe another way to put this would be, how do we move from a heart that is proud to a heart that is humble? How do we move from a heart that is proud to a heart that's humble? See, the same truths that are relevant for salvation are the same truths that allow us to experience the power of His salvation, the transforming work of the gospel. So the first thing that we see here is in verse 7, where it says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We're to surrender to Christ's lordship by following His word and taking a stand against sin in our lives. To surrender to Christ's lordship by following His word and taking a stand against sin in your life. See, victory in Christ begins when we willingly follow His leading and word. So often we can be frustrated that we don't sense God's leading. We find ourselves being powerless to sin. The problem is, is that we haven't made a decision to fully submit this area of our lives to Jesus. And the other part of it is, is that we are no longer taking a stand against sin. When I was in youth ministry, I used to tell students all the time, they would say, well, I got myself in this situation and God didn't get me out of it. Where was he? And I'd share with them, listen, when you're in the backseat of a car and you're already naked, and you pray to God, I think it's a bit unfair. In order for God to work in that situation to remove you from that temptation, it's going to have to be radical. It's like jumping off of a cliff without a parachute and then asking God, hey, Lord, can you give me a parachute right now? It doesn't mean that God won't work in those situations, but my heart has to be one of taking a stand against sin. It has to say that before I actually put myself in that situation, I'm going to move away from it. And it doesn't mean that we, we don't stop, and it doesn't mean that we don't get away from that. It doesn't mean that even if we were in the backseat of a car naked with somebody else, that we don't get away and stop and say, it's, 
I'm going to stop the sin. But if we want to stop sin, we have to take a stand against it. That's what he's saying. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Take the hard stand. That's what he's saying. Humility acknowledges that we are to call and to follow the Lord in our lives and take a stand against that sin. In Romans 8, verses 6 through 8, it says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. See, often we'll submit to them in those areas that are comfortable, but not in the areas that require us to give up a portion of ourselves. God desires us to surrender completely to him. And that surrender occurs by following his word, even when it's difficult, and taking a stand against sin. In the moment, sin almost always looks attractive. God's telling us we have to resist it. In the New Testament, we have three examples of sin that he says to flee from. He doesn't say entertain it. He doesn't stand there, say stand there and figure out if you're strong to it. He says run. Taking a stand against sin means that when I'm walking in humility, it says, you know what? I'm weak. <laughs> and if I enter into this situation, it only gets worse from here. That's humility. Pride says, man, I've failed at this 20 times. I've been doing great for five weeks. Yeah, let's see what happens. I think I'm good enough. We run from sin. We resist it. We resist the attacks of the enemy by being submitted to his word and to him, trusting that his way is the right way. One of the open doors that we often give the enemy is we begin disbelieving that God's way is the best way. When you see yourself beginning to compromise on God's way being the best way and start making excuses for it, immediately stop and begin praying for more of God's grace to give you the strength to embrace the truth and follow his word. Don't allow that door to continue to open so that you might be deceived. In pride, we do wonderful magic with our words. In pride, we talk ourselves into believing that the things that we are doing in disobedience to God are right with God, that God is well-pleased in our disobedience. That's what pride does. It deceives. Pride makes us defensive. It makes us foolish. It makes us think that we are spiritual when in fact we are walking in disobedience. It tries to put a righteous spin on unrighteous actions. It's nothing more than somebody trying to upsell you when you've already said, I've wasted money on this product. It's slimy. That's what it is. Why? because it is the deception of the enemy. Satan himself fell because of pride. 
And at the root of all sin is pride. It is a self-sufficient rebellion against the promises and truth of God. So when God calls us to walk in humility, it begins with a surrendering of our life to Christ. It is said that Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers of our nation, literally took scissors and cut the parts of the Bible out that he did not like. Now, most of us would not admit to that, but we do it mentally, don't we? There are parts that we go, you know, God, I just don't feel like being nice to this person today. And you told me that I needed to love them, and I don't feel like it. They're really unlovable. And the whole time, the Lord is looking at you saying, who are you? You too were unlovable, and yet I loved you. See, we may not literally do this, but we simply ignore those portions that we don't like. Ephesians 6.13 says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. We need the armor of God each and every day to take a stand against sin. I would encourage you to read Ephesians 6 regularly to put on the armor of God regularly to take a stand against sin. The second thing, the first is surrendering. The second is seeking. It's to seek relationship with God by repenting of sin and honoring Him in all of your life. Repenting of sin and honoring Him in all of your life. Verse 8 says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Now that's interesting because We tend to take that as an independent statement, but it's tied to the next statement. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's what God's saying to us. If we want to draw near to God, how do we do that? We do that by what? Cleansing our hands and purifying our hearts. See, we don't feel close to Christ, and when we don't feel that during those moments, our tendency is to move away from him rather than towards him. However, Christ always moves towards us when we turn to him. That's the promise. So many of us try to find Christ when we're walking in disobedience. And this idea of drawing near to God is to actually say, turn towards him. Stop with the disobedience. Stop trying to do things on your own and turn towards him. David Guzik shares the story of an elderly couple who was driving down the road in their car with a front bench seat. And as they drove, the wife noticed that many of the other cars with couples in the front seat, the the woman sat close to her husband as he drove. She turned and she asked her husband, why is it that we don't sit that close anymore? And he simply answered, it wasn't me who moved. I think that's often the way it is with God, right? We wonder where God is, but we've been the one that's kind of moved away. There are going to be dry seasons in our faith. But in those dry seasons, do we continue to pursue or do we stop pursuing? That's the difference. When we continue to pursue, God shows up in unique ways maybe differently than we're used to. 
but in unique ways. I watched that happen in my life over the past year through the different trials, the different medical things. I watched that happen. At a season and a time where I felt most distant from God and crying out and saying to the Lord, Lord, I need your presence. And him looking and actually literally bringing forth his word and then bringing to mind, my church is my presence. You see, we don't stop pursuing because we feel distant. We continue to pursue. And we draw near to God by purifying our hearts, by cleansing our hands. You see, so often sin separates us from God, whether it's unbelief or it's some open and sin that we know that needs to be repented of. When he says, clean your hands, you sinners, he's telling us to be a repentant people, to turn from our sin. And that a vital part of this sin is confession. But you can't repent of sin that you're unwilling to acknowledge. So we need to ask God to reveal specific sin in our life, past and present, and confess it. And then we need to seek forgiveness. And then he says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. We're to honor God by pursuing his righteousness in every aspect of our lives. We're to be singular-focused, not moving one way and then the other, or saying, yes, I desire God, but then choosing to walk after something that's not of God. We're to pursue Christ with consistency, with priority, with single-mindedness, not double-mindedness. If you ever want to see if pride is at work in your life, just ask yourself if you're being double-minded. If somebody comes to you and says, I feel like you're being double-minded, you're saying one thing and you're doing another, or you're saying one thing to one person, you're saying something else to somebody else, don't respond with defensiveness. Pause. Ask for clarity. Allow your brothers and sisters in Jesus to expose what's actually taking place in your heart and your life. Double-mindedness is one of the best visual sins, excuse me, presentations of the prideful sin. If you find yourself double-minded, you are walking in pride. That's guaranteed. That's what he's saying in Scripture. He's saying the double-minded man, right? The one that is pursuing one thing and doing another. The one who is saying one thing and then saying another. God's desire is that our focus is singular on Him. In our culture, it is easy to become very prideful in the face of people criticizing and criticizing our faith. When people come at us, our first reaction is to what? Get defensive. When our faith is being broke down or mocked, our place is to get defensive. But Jesus was mocked all the time. And his faith was questioned all the time. 
And the truth of who he is was put to the test constantly. And he never reacted with destruction. In fact, the only time that we see him react with fervor is in the temple with the religious leaders, not the culture. That means that we live in a world that is going to hate us because Jesus said so, that they will hate you because they've first hated me. We need to walk in humility with one another. And part of our single-mindedness is to know that we are going to be misunderstood. And we might even mocked, but we are not the defenders of the faith. We are the truth-bearers of the faith, and God defends His own. God defends His own truth and ministry. And when we get stuck in a place where we believe that we are the one person that has to uphold, we will find ourselves constantly in a battle where we are fighting against and opposed to the Lord because we are putting ourselves into a position that only God can do. We stand firm, we walk with Him, we love Christ, and we love people. We bring the truth with power and boldness and love. But our job is not to win the argument. And our job is not the defender of Christianity. Those are God's job and God's alone. And when we understand that, then we walk in humility. Because it's in that moment we realize, yeah, you know, in my strength, I'm not going to actually be able to explain this in five minutes. But maybe God just wanted me to be that seed. Or maybe God's going to do something miraculous in these five minutes that I could never explain, but it will never be in my strength. And so, God, I need you right now because you are the only one who can do this. Psalm 19, 8 through 10 says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. The word of God, the precepts of God, single-mindedness in Him, that's what he's saying, is worth more than gold. Do we believe that? I think that if we saw the other side, if we saw heaven, all the things that we pursue as idols here would seem like such rubbish. But right now, what God is asking us to do is to trust that, to believe that, and to know that we've seen life transformed in Jesus and that God's promises are true. That the greatest fulfillment that we can know is in Him and not in this world. Now verse 9 says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Sounds kind of harsh. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. This is not a God who is sadistic. 
He is a God who is bringing this forth, and he's simply saying, view sin through my eyes. Don't rejoice in it. View sin through God's eyes. Don't rejoice in it. As a part of giving ourselves completely to him is the truth that we must see sin through the eyes of God, period. Don't rejoice in it. That means past sin, by the way. One of the things that I go over with couples in premarital counseling is that if there was premarital impurity in their relationship, their marriage doesn't make that sin right. Everything forward from the day of that marriage is now holy with the Lord. But that part of their own relationship with the Lord needs to involve the seeking of forgiveness, the confession of that sin, and the seeking of forgiveness. And there is no rejoicing over that sinful part of their life. That's one of those things that we share with our children is that one of the downsides of sin is that you don't get the freedom to look back fondly on those experiences. You have to see them the way that God sees them. Now, God will redeem and bring redemption, but we must view sin through the eyes of the Lord. Don't rejoice in it past or present. Don't do it. Because once we subtly begin rejoicing in past sin, we diminish the severity of it. And as soon as we begin to diminish the severity of it, we stop walking in humility and we start walking in pride because it becomes nothing more than justification. And in that process, we stop resisting the devil. So, verse 10 here is the Wonderful, promised, victorious blessing of God's grace then. So we've seen, he says, surrender and seek. That's how we walk in humility. And now we see the result. Verse 10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. He will exalt us by fulfilling his promises in our lives. That's the result of his grace. He will exalt us by fulfilling his promises in our lives. This is the essence of verse six when it says, but he gives more grace. We have to trust that God is able to accomplish what we are not. And we need to rely on his sufficiency, strength, and power rather than our own. Francis Chan in his book, Forgotten God, puts it well when he says, I don't want my life to be explainable without the Holy Spirit. I want people to look at my life and know that I couldn't be doing this by my own power. I want to live in such a way that I'm desperate for him to come through, that if he doesn't come through, I'm screwed. I believe he's calling all of us to depend on him for living in a way that cannot be mimicked or forged. He wants us to walk in step with his spirit rather than depend solely on the raw talent and knowledge that he's given us. The very thing that we desire in this world at times, honor, and exaltation is the very thing to which God is opposed against us when we do it in our own strength. And yet, when we do it in His strength, and He's the one that's working in it, His promise is He will exalt us. He will lift us up. He will honor us. Who better to honor? A world that hates you? 
for a king who loves you. That's who we serve. A king who loves us. Better to have his honor than the honor of the world. See, we tend to view God's presence as top-down when we need to see his presence as both top-down, meaning salvific, and parallel, transformative. God is not simply watching us, but rather he is with us. I want to leave us with one last quote, and it's simple. Alistair Begg makes this simple quote, and I think it ties up perfectly the aspect of his humility and grace. So often we think we have to do something to accomplish for God rather than knowing that it is God who is working in us to accomplish his things. Alistair Begg says, when God appears to be most absent in your life, trust me, he is at work. When we struggle to see God working, if we are surrendered to him and we are seeking him, you can trust him. He is at work. Isn't that a wonderful truth? That he is at work even when we don't see it. And he has called us to be a humble people, not a prideful people. Let's pray. Lord, take this simple truth of humility and grace, seeing that we are living as a victorious people, not as a people who are burdened by culture, but a people who have overcome the culture in you. May we see that we are not the keepers the keepers of our own strength and our own abilities, but rather you have blessed us with them. And may we see that you are empowered through our humility, not in our great talents and abilities. Father, may we be a people who walk in humility, who live as victories, not as defeats. And may being a victor be seen as attractive to this world, even though, God, the world rejects much of what you bring forth. And we ask this in your name. Amen.